Hey, meat suits. I'm Melissa. And I'm Benjamin. Thanks for being here for our very first episode. We are Truly Madly Creepy, a true crime podcast. Small disclaimer, there will be swearing, cussing, all the bad words. We'll have it all because we're dirty ass sailors. Nobody said writing for a podcast would be so easy to overthink, so we do apologize if anyone thinks that our formatting is off or we sound like shit. We're a work in progress and super effing excited to start. Without further ado, what are we going to talk about today? Today we explore the mystery, the murders, and the spooks of Glensheen Mansion in Duluth, Minnesota. So as cool as the story is, there isn't much available information on the crime or the paranormal because that's what happens when a mansion is donated to a university. But we visited, did the damn thing, and we're going to talk about it. So, Glensheen Mansion is located up in Duluth, Minnesota, along North Superior. Um, construction began in 1905. The house is built by Chester and Clara Congdon, which don't make fun of me for how I say it. I can't help it. I'm a weirdo. So, um, Chester had become a huge name in the iron mining business, starting with becoming chief of council for Henry Oliver, a mining magnate from Pittsburgh, then buying land himself containing iron, leasing that land. Eventually, Henry and Chester started their own business. Leasing iron ore properties, and Chester went on to purchase land in the south and the west coast as well, which this is all Chester ever wanted. He didn't come from a wealthy family, but was very money-driven. So the two had six or seven kids, depending on the source, because Robert died before the house was built, so some people don't count him anymore, I guess. Um, just forget about a kid. Just... I know, I'm sad for Robert. Yeah. It was like some... Fever thing too. I don't know. Early nineteen hundreds thing. Yeah, everyone died. Literally, everyone and their mother. Everyone and their mother. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so the kids were Walter, Edward, Marjorie, Helen, John, Robert, and Elizabeth. And then Claire's nephew Alfred lived there as well. The house was massive. They had a gardener's cottage, carriage house, boathouse, and a pier going into Lake Superior for their yacht. I want a pier. I want a yacht. I also want a yacht. Because <laughs> the, the yacht burnt down or something. Or sank. <laughs> burnt down? No, I think a, the fire had something to do with it. I understand. Yeah, like it started on fire and then sank. I'm probably 100% wrong. Yeah, probably. Me too. Really? <laughs> don't agree with me. Sorry. Yeah, probably, you're probably wrong. But like, but I fine. mean, I feel like I read something about this, but I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. They only had it for a couple of years. That's sad. If I bought a yacht, I'd want it for a long time, not a couple of years. That's that's a waste of money. Yeah. Well, not when you're millionaires in the 20th century. That's true. Okay. The house is 20,000 square feet, had 39 rooms, 10 bathrooms, 15 okay. fucking fireplaces. Hello, I am moving in. I don't even have one fireplace. No. Oh, I do. <laughs> Actually, we have an electric one, if that counts. No, but... it does not. Yeah, no. Do you have a chimney? We do not. You cannot have a fireplace. Santa Claus cannot come visit our house. Sorry about your life. It's fine. Also, okay, so there's a shower that had 10 shower heads. Holy shit. Yeah. Considering early 1900s, I didn't even know they had, like, showers. Yeah. Which sounds super ignorant, but... I mean, yeah, but, like, did the poorer poorer people, like... No, they had... They had, like, wash... Footed bathtubs. 
yeah. I want, I don't even have, my shower head now is like, you know, like there's two of them. You have two shower heads? Yeah, because I have one, like, I have one that's hanging on the thing, like a regular shower head, and then I have one that's connected to it that you can, like, pull Oh, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. seen those. Yeah. It's very nice, actually. But not as nice as fucking Congdon Mansion. Jealous. Nothing is, really. Very jealous. So when the house was built, it cost 854000 Today, it's valued at $22 million. You know, I've never even considered that much money. $22 million? Yeah, that's a lot of money. I'll let you know how it feels when I become a billionaire. Oh, please do. <laughs> also, give me a loan. I'll give you $22 million. Perfect. <laughs> You'll know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can actually tour this house, and we went on a tour. We did. The tour was really quite a lot of fun. I went when I was a kid one time, and then um, going back as an adult was quite the experience um i really enjoyed the like the living room thing was like it's huge i don't know but my favorite room in it was the breakfast room it's like this like green room that's all like windows and there's like a brick patio off of it and it overlooks the like land and the lake and it's just it's just beautiful and i want to eat breakfast in it which room had the vaseline glass that glass that has, like, uranium in it. I don't remember, but I want some. Yeah. I found it. You can buy it. Oh, were you talking about the the green... Uh, that was down in the basement in the um in the billiard room, I think? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That it's was real-life so cool. glue. Yeah, and it, like, kind of glowed or something. Like Yeah, under a black light. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was You can cool. still buy it. I found some. There's, like, one dish is, like, $30, but... Huh. You could buy it. I'm I'm going to the store. The the glass store. The yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> okay. I'll let you know when I find it. <laughs> so, um the Congdon family played a major role in their community. Chester donated money to build the scenic route along Lake Superior, which is effing beautiful. Duluth has roads and and a park named after the Congdons even the Stimfall Shore for Elizabeth. Elizabeth was born April 22nd, 1894, which is my grandma's birthday. Wow, happy birthday, Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> happy birthday in October. Yeah. <laughs> happy birthday in six months. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elizabeth also grew up to be a philanthropist. She held a seat on the board at St. Luke's Hospital, and during World War II, she organized the Red Cross Nurses Aid Committee in Duluth, and these women helped the war efforts in any way they could. Elizabeth wasn't even a show-off about it either. She didn't boast about her money, didn't wear extravagant clothes, but she did like her cars. She even had a sports car at one point, which is pretty badass. I'm just picturing, like, a little old lady in a sports car. I know, me too, which she clearly was not. She died in 77. So, so she probably was not an old lady when she had her sports car. Yeah, I know. I I, I realize, but like, just picture the like. I, I don't know. It's fun. I don't know. <laughs> Little old lady Elizabeth just cruising around in her sports car with her nurse in the back seat or something. <laughs> I love it. So even though Elizabeth never married, she did accept an engagement ring from Fred Wolven, but that ended up not working out. Elizabeth told Fred she didn't love him enough to spend the rest of her life with him. Poor Fred. I know. So she returned the ring and it was thrown into Lake Superior. Poor Fred. (laughs) Fred never married, but in his will left money for Elizabeth to buy a ring for their friendship. And she did. That's so beautiful. She wore it until she died. So beautiful. Um, so 
Although Elizabeth never married, she did adopt two children, which apparently for the 1930s wasn't a thing. A single woman didn't just adopt babies, but Elizabeth had the money and the resources to make it happen. So at 38, Elizabeth adopted her first daughter, Marjorie, then three years later adopted another baby girl named Jennifer. She named them both, too. That was not their okay. real names. Did you say she was 38? Yep. Wow. I, I know. don't know why I thought she was a little younger. I feel like... Or something. I'm too old to have kids. Yeah. <laughs> so getting up there. Yeah, but I read that she wasn't being a like being a single mom is super hard on her. Mm-hmm. She see. left. She left the kids with her mom a lot. Yeah, because didn't Clara live at home still? Yeah. Or well, live in the home still. Yeah. So yeah, I bet she helped a lot actually. Yeah. But still, that's not easy. I'm sure. I right. No, I don't have kids. So there isn't much information on Jennifer, but it seems Jennifer and Marjorie were polar opposites. Marjorie was born July 14th, 1932. Even with being given whatever she wanted, being able to attend a prep school, she was still a troubled kid, throwing fits to get her way. At 16, during a stay at Menninger Clinic in Kansas, she was diagnosed as a sociopath. Oh, go figure. Uh, shortly after she married, her first husband, Dick Leroy, they had seven kids. During their marriage, Marjorie could not control her spending. She was constantly putting Leroy in debt. As he got raises, she spent more. As kids were being born, life in general cost more. And he could not keep up. Leroy was in crazy debt with Elizabeth because of Marjorie's spending. At one point, Marjorie wanted a bigger house and Leroy protested the idea because they couldn't afford it. She literally went behind his back, bought a house. Leroy refused to sign the purchase agreement, so Marjorie took Leroy's name off the agreement, wrote a check, from a non-existent account and bought the house. This woman is something yeah. else. She like literally scribbled his name off the purchase <laughs> agreement. Like Which, why? Why? What? I mean, I know why, but what inspires you if you can't afford something to buy something that extravagant? I don't. I don't know. Especially when your partner in life is like, "No, don't do it. We can't afford it." What? Yeah. So, obviously, this didn't go well, and Elizabeth had to pay the full $32,000 for the house. Poor Elizabeth. Which, I want a house to cost $32,000 for me. Yeah. I could maybe actually afford that. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> now they're like $300,000. <laughs> America is so cool. <laughs> so, eventually, the house had to be refinanced as they were in so much debt. One time, she bought a... $4,000 fucking rug. Leroy tried to tell the person who bought it to, who brought it to the house to take it back because there was no money to pay for it, but the rug couldn't be brought back because it was a special order. Could you just imagine, like, you're walking up with this, like, fancy-ass rug, and, and the guy's like, nope, take it back, and you're just like, uh, uh, and, like, how awkward would that situation be, honestly? Yeah. All because of Marjorie. Yeah, she drained him of his, any money he had, any life he could have had, he even said things were better when she was out of the home. Like, if she was out of town, things were better. I feel so bad for him. Yeah. So Which, in 19... 19- a lot of people say that about their significant others. Yeah, he meant it. But he meant it, yeah. <laughs> like, fucked up. So in 1970, Leroy left Marjorie and she turned their kids against him. She lied about the divorce of the kids, blamed everything on him. The divorce was messy, and yet Marjorie was awarded custody of the children. Of course she was. Because why not? Yeah. Reading his story was actually fucking sad because he only stayed with her for so long. 
for the children, and then when he left, he was estranged from them anyway. That's really sad. I know. Their divorce was finalized in April of 71. She moved her, and I believe the youngest two kids, um, actually, I don't know. It didn't say. Nothing said besides the one youngest one. But she took some of them to Colorado in 1975. She said, because I think it was the youngest one. I don't remember his name, but he had um asthma super bad. And she said that the Colorado weather was better for his asthma. Which, I mean. Yeah, I mean, probably. But, like, yeah. like Actually, I don't know. I don't know either, because, like, don't they usually say, like, deserts are better for people like that? Well, half of Colorado is a desert, I think. Oh. You know, I think you're right. I always just think of Colorado, and I just think the whole place is a mountain, but it isn't. Yeah, so I don't... I don't know. So she moved to Colorado in 1975. In March of 1976, Marjorie married Roger Caldwell, Roger grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Seems like he had a pretty average life. He excelled in school, went to college before eloping with his first wife, Martha, in, in 1954. He studied to become a minister. They started a family. Only after a year and a half of religious studies, he dropped that and worked many jobs. He was a religious person? Like, yeah. going in to be a religious yep. thing? That was, wow. that was his goal in life at one point. Wow. So, in the book that I read... That Ben bought, um, a will to murder, by Gail Fitchdinger. That's probably wrong, and I'm so sorry, Gail. But it's close, I think. I don't. Know. Anyways, it states in there that he worked eleven different jobs from 1957 to 1972. That's a lot of jobs in what ten years? Not even. No, 11:57. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so good at math, guys. So good. So good. So Fifteen that's like, years. Okay. Still, 11 jobs in 15 years. You know how many jobs I've had in 15 years? Three. I haven't had 11, but I've had a lot, so I shouldn't judge. Yeah, but still 11? I don't know. That seems a bit excessive. Well, to go from, like, going to college and being a minister, trying to be a minister, and then can't hold down a job. It's a little weird. Yeah, a little bit. But he also had a drinking problem. Oh, that, that could be part of it. Yeah, Martha separated from him at one point because of it. He started going to AA and things got better. They got back together and they moved to Colorado. Eventually, the drinking started again and the two were divorced in 1974. All right. Shortly after is when Roger met Marjorie. Good. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Good times, yeah. Soulmates. Glad, glad for them. So they dated for two months, got engaged on St. Patrick's Day in 1976, and then married days later on March 20th. They only dated for two months before they got engaged? Yeah, and then isn't St. Patrick's Day March 17th? Or is it 14th? I think it's I think it's 17th. Yeah, so they were engaged for three days. All right. All right. I love <laughs> this for them. They're very young. I'm sure of it. Within the first month of the marriage... Uh, things went south for Roger. Marjorie had written $7,000 worth of bad checks. Oh, back to her old tricks, I see. I can't even, like, fathom $7,000 worth of bad checks. Yeah, I can't even. Have you ever written a bad check? Not, like, for real. Like, I mean, I've, like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The police are listening. Continue. I know, yeah. The FBI is on us right now. <laughs> They're about to bust through the door. So, like, I've written a check for, like, say... 
gas that I know I don't have the money for. Like, you know, like I, I know it's not in my account and I know that in a little while it will be. So I write the check knowing that it'll wait a little bit to cash and then it'll be fine. Yeah. I taught you that. Because I am a good person. <laughs> Seems like it. You're welcome. But I mean, I haven't done that in many years. I don't even have checks anymore. So. Me either. I remember, just remember doing that when we lived in St. Cloud, when we had that apartment together. Yep, yep I did it all the time there. Yeah, had to. We were yeah. very poor back then. Very. We were, I don't even know how we paid rent. I don't know. I mean, clearly we didn't always, otherwise we wouldn't be here right now. But yeah, that was only like 20, 30 bucks at a time. This is $7,000 in one month. That seems excessive. Or was it one month? Yeah, one month. Okay, anyways. Roger's credit cards went missing. Uh, Marjorie said Roger was Roger was the one with the problem, not her. Like, where are his credit cards, though? Yeah. And at this point, she had had 40 years of practice training everyone's every penny. So it, it was clearly Marjorie. Wow. But this just turned Robert into another money-hungry weirdo. The two were writing bed checks all over the place. Somehow... They were able to get an almost $300,000 ranch. All right. Which, for I feel like that's a lot for the, the late 70s. Yeah. But my concept of time and money is terrible, so I could be wrong. But well, I mean, like, a regular house costs, like, three hundred grand now, right? So yeah. Three hundred grand <clears throat> for a ranch would be... Oh, that's hard because a whole ranch versus a house, but, like, the time to... I don't even know. Don't yeah. Know. Anyways. I'm not, I'm not an expert. Goodbye. <laughs> um, at one point, the ranch was in foreclosure. Of course. Yeah, shocker. Their um, their phone line had been shut off from lack of payment. Cars and furnitures, furniture were ordered to be taken back. The whole Congdon family knew this was going on as well. Even though Marjorie had trust in her name, she was only given a certain amount a month, which like good on them, not just giving into her. So she got $150 a month from some insurance company annuity, and Roger was getting $97 a week from unemployment. So they were broke as fuck, buying rich people stuff, and could never get out of the red. They eventually moved into the Holland House Hotel in Golden, Colorado. So I bet you all are wondering how Elizabeth is doing. Well, by June 26, 1977, she had 24-hour nurse care because of a stroke she had had 12 years previous. Uh, she had some paralysis on her right side because of it, so she she needed the care. That's poor Elizabeth. Yeah. So on this day, um, Elizabeth and her nurse, Mildred Klosowski, just got back from a little trip, and as one does, Elizabeth took a nap. Then they played card games and had a light dinner together. At 10 p.m., Mildred brought Elizabeth upstairs to her bedroom, got her ready and into bed, telling her nurse... I need a good night's rest. I'll see you tomorrow, dear, was the last thing Elizabeth would ever say. That's so sad. Mildred's shift ended at 11, and to relieve her was nurse Velma Pitila. Uh, Velma chatted with Mildred as usual and went to the room across the hall from Elizabeth, which is where the nurses stayed. Velma wasn't actually uh, even the nurse scheduled for that night, but the other nurses that could that would usually work uh, weren't available. And because Velma missed Elizabeth, she agreed to help out, even though she had retired a couple months prior. That's so nice and so sad. Um, yeah, her husband had tried to stop her from going, but she went anyways because she wanted to help. So the next morning, June 27th at 7 a.m., head nurse Mildred, another Mildred, Garview, came into her shift. She went up to the stairs as normal, and as she got up to the landing, she get, she began to see Velma's body. 
Her first thought was that Velma was resting or fell down the stairs. But as she kept going, she saw blood on the carpet and then saw that Velma's head was laying in a pool of her own blood. Garview did check for vital signs, but unfortunately there were none. Freaked the fuck out and worried about Elizabeth, she ran up to the stairs. Oh, she ran up the stairs and found Elizabeth in her bed dead. She had been suffocated with a pillow. The room was left a mess, dresser drawers pulled out, and jewelry boxes were thrown around. She lifted a corner of the pillow and knew she didn't need to check for a pulse. She ran downstairs, told a maid that was getting breakfast ready, and then they called police. There were staff in the house when it happened, but none of them heard anything happen because the servants' quarters were separated. But the cook's dog did start barking at almost 3 a.m. and didn't stop until almost 5 a.m. But the cook just tried to calm her dog down, not thinking into it too much. Which I read that she, the last time her dog ever acted like this was when she was working for somebody else, stayed in their house, and the house got burglarized. Or maybe it was like her own home. But anyways, that was another instance where the dog was freaking out. Interesting. Wouldn't you think that if, like if my dog's freaking out for, what, three hours straight, two hours straight, I feel like I would, I don't know, go check it out or something. Like, be like, what's going on? I never do. No. Zuri barks all the time. <laughs> and I'm just like, shut up. So, no. Yeah, but for hours on end, like... I don't know. Maybe I'm just used to it because Zuri will freak out for an hour at a time. Maybe. But, so, yeah. So, that was interesting. Um, so, the scene was gruesome. Velma had been beaten beyond recognition. Her hair was matted with blood and there was stocking wrapped around one of her wrists that was so tight it had to be cut off during the autopsy. Near the body was a bloodied candlestick. Elizabeth had bruises on her arm, raw skin on her nose from the pillow, so they assumed she had been trying to fight off her killer. She also had jewelry taken off of her, like rings and a watch. The dresser drawers were hardly pulled out, which gave the detectives the idea that this was staged as a random break-in. Velma's husband um, was brought to the mansion, but he had already found out his wife was murdered from a news clip on the radio. That's, what a way to find out. That's so sad. Yeah. That he couldn't even, like, I don't know. And he didn't want her to go. I know, like, and she was retired, right? So Yeah, so. This whole thing is just so sad. Yeah. Um, he was able to tell the cops that his car that Velma had driven to work was missing, so whoever killed them had stolen his car. They did, the detectives got 37 pieces of evidence off of the staircase, including teeth fragments, um, a dented flashlight, hairpins, earrings. So it was obvious Velma put up a hell of a fight. Good for her. Unfortunately, even though the crime scene was closed off, it wasn't protected. A lot of people walked through that house, and there were even cigarette butts in one of the toilets left by the cop that was supposed to be protecting the scene. Good cops. Yeah, yeah, he did great. Stellar job. Um, there... Like, things changed within the Duluth Police Department because of this case, though. Probably good. All that the cops knew was that it was premeditated and staged to look like a break-in. The killer came in from a window in the back of the house, and when they brought in canines to look for a scent, a dog jumped out a window and the handler followed, messing up more of the crime scene. They took a bunch of pictures, but didn't keep an inventory of where or when the pictures were taken. Duluth didn't have a high crime rate at the time, and there weren't many cops who trained to investigate homicide cases, so the lead detective said they did their best, even though he was clearly annoyed. Yeah, I mean, I can understand not a lot of experience or whatever causing problems. Yeah, there was only, like, three or, or something that knew how to, how to like, work a 
homicide case. So at 8.30 that morning, the keys to the missing car were found at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport in a trash bin. When cops from the BCA got there, they found the car with blood in it, but there was definitely a lack of technology back then. A lot of people were listed in Elizabeth's will, so they started questioning all of them. The family suspected Marjorie, and detectives started looking at flights that went to Colorado. So after Marjorie found out about her mom's murder, she quote-unquote acted a mess, but didn't have Roger with her. And when people asked about him, she dismissed the questions and gave multiple excuses as to where he was. The investigation led to Rod- Roger Caldwell, as Marjorie was actually in Colorado at the time. The cab driver actually identified Roger, saying he dropped him off at clinching that night, and then he was identified by two employees at a gift shop in the airport. Marjorie was set to inherit $8 million when her mom died. Days before the murder, Marjorie actually got Elizabeth to sign away part of that inheritance to Roger, so he definitely had a motive. Mm-hmm. On July 5th, Marjorie and Roger were still in Minnesota, staying at a Holiday Inn uh, in the city somewhere, I think Bloomington. The police came by and were able to search the hotel room. While it was being searched, a a detective was talking to Marjorie as Roger was in the hospital. During the search, they recovered jewelry that they believed came from Elizabeth. The detective started questioning Marjorie about it, and she claimed that for much of it, uh, her mother had identical pieces. So they had, like, matching ones. A likely tale. Yeah, it turned out to not be true. Shocker. Um, and one of those was the watch that I had mentioned and then a sapphire ring, which is the one that she had bought after her friend died. The one that had like proposed to her or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, but the detective knew that she was lying and went along with it anyways. On July 6th, Roger was arrested. He had cuts and a uh, hurt hand that could have matched up with Velma fighting him off. Roger was being charged with two counts of first degree murder, so the trial started May 9th, 1978. And on July 8th, Roger was convicted of two counts of murder, both with life sentences. Days later, Marjorie was arrested on charges of conspiracy because, duh. Obviously. Yeah, like, <laughs> she, every, like, even Jennifer Marjorie's sister, when she was told about it, first thing she said was Marjorie did it. At this point, everyone is positive Marjorie had something to do with it. Also, I'd like to point out that three years before this, she was suspected of poisoning Elizabeth with homemade marmalade. Elizabeth was down for the count and drowsy for two days. After this, staff were told not to leave Marjorie alone with her mother and calls had to be monitored. Because this would have brought in bad publicity, it was never reported. Oh, good. So, in the uh, trial of the conspiracy, um, she was found not guilty because of circumstantial evidence, which, in turn, got Roger's conviction overturned. Instead of trying to... Trying him again, they came up with a deal that if he pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, he would only get time served, which at that time had only been five years. Roger did this and lived a free man after. Marjorie only visited him in prison once and didn't attend his trial, which that's your husband. Yeah, as I I think we said before, they were meant for each other or something. Yeah, (laughs) soulmates. Hashtag soulmates. Uh, she, oh, so Marjorie, um, even went on to marry another man in North Dakota while still married to Roger. Oh. Yeah, she was actually wanted for it, um, there for bigamy. She seems like a lovely woman, really. (laughs) Like, wow. So the whole time Roger was in prison, uh, he kept claiming his innocence, and then in 1988, 
he killed himself and in his suicide note claimed his innocence again, but didn't say who did it. So did he do it? What's the point of saying you didn't do it in your suicide note if you did do it? Yeah, like why? Why? Just, I don't know. If you didn't do it, who did? Yeah, and why at that point wouldn't you just say like... Yeah, I don't know. Like I get why he pled guilty. Yeah. Even if he didn't do it because he was going to be free. Right, yeah, I get that part, but, like, I just, I don't understand how, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh, currently, Marjorie is living in Arizona and has spent time in prison for fraud, and they believe she was part of some arson stints, too. Her next husband died, and some even wondered if she had something to do with that as well. So, since two people are murdered there, the house has got to be haunted, right? Right. Most likely. And I'm here to tell you about it. Um, so I looked into the creepy and spooky goings on um, since Elizabeth and Velma died. And there have been quite a lot of things that could easily be attributed to the paranormal. That being said, Glenn Sheen's official stance is that there are no ghosts. Um, None at all. The estate's director, um, his name is Wade Lawrence, he said, and I quote, I don't want to associate Glenn Sheen with the paranormal or Halloween. Which, why in the world not? I would love to have a giant mansion that's known and recognized for its ghostly goings-on. But I guess I get it. It's a historic place and it's supposed to be educational. In fact, the tour guides have been instructed to not talk about any of the so-called ghostly happenings. And I remember when I was a kid, I went there once, and my teachers or whoever told us that the tour guides would shut you down if you even asked about the crimes that were committed. It's Um, true. I guess now, though, you can ask. Yeah, that's that's what I've understood as well. Um, like, they'll answer your questions about the crimes if you ask, but I don't believe that they'll bring it up themselves. No, definitely not. So they really want to focus on the history of the estate rather than the darkness that exists there or the weird stuff that happens. Some of the paranormal stuff that happens, imagine if you will, you go into this huge house, you cross the foyer, and then you take a right, you go down a short hall into a library. Um, so this was supposedly Elizabeth's favorite room in the house because she loved to read. A woman after my own heart. Same. But because of her love of the library, it's been reported a number of times that there's a hazy white mist that you can see uh, drifting about among the books. So I'm trying to decide how I would react if I was just, like, reading a book or staring out the window or whatever you do in a library in a mansion and just some weird, like, mist floated by. Like, would I be like, hey, Elizabeth, how's it going? Or would I scream my head off, say a few choice words, and run screaming from the house, never to be seen or heard from again? I I would have a grand old time. Sounds like it. I'd be like, hey, (laughs) how are you? (laughs) Please don't hurt me. (laughs) That's all I ask. Like, I mean, there are creepier things, um, even that happen in this house, but it's still, it's, I don't know, this one interests me. I think it's interesting. But anyway, so that's a thing that apparently happens to people. Um, also, there have been a lot of reports of two women seen standing in the window of Helen's bedroom, looking out at the lake, which, if I'm not mistaken, that's the room where Elizabeth was murdered. So it does make some sense that they would be there. Yeah, really just depends on who you ask. Yeah. On which bedroom it was, but... Yeah. I think it was Helen's. Yeah, I also think so. Just based on, like, knowing what I know about the house from being in it, plus what we read in the book and stuff i feel like i think that's right and plus it does say that they were looking that they're they're seen looking out towards the lake so it would have to be in the back of the house 
I digress. Um, there is um, some confirmed happenings there. There are strange, eerie feelings of sadness or panic as you go around the house, apparently. Which, again, I'm trying to figure out how I would feel if that was happening. Like, if I'm just walking along and I start to panic for no reason, like, is this just a Tuesday or is it because of the house? I don't know. It's just a Tuesday. Just a Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> just, just your everyday happenings. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are people who have seen a woman wearing blue who wanders around on the second floor. Um, and apparently she cries and speaks in Scandinavian as she wanders. And, like, let's be honest, how terrifying is it to encounter any crying where there shouldn't be any crying happening? It's pretty scary stuff. Um, at least one occurrence has been reported where somebody saw a piece of candy being rolled from one side of a dresser to the other, which I think that's super weird, but alright. But it hasn't been confirmed, so it's possible that somebody just made it up. It's like the one person said it kind of thing. I want candy. Yeah. Same, even if it is being rolled across the dresser by a ghost, I'll take it. It's fine. Yeah, what if? As long as I get something. Yeah. Also, it all sounds so wholesome so far. Yeah. Lady crying, kid throwing candy around. Yeah. Or Elizabeth throwing candy around. Elizabeth. Maybe, maybe Velma liked candy. I just pictured an old lady, the same one that was driving her car earlier, um, <laughs> just, rolling some candy around. She's like in a parade. <laughs> I love this. Um, okay, so both workers and volunteers, uh, they say often that they turn off all the lights in the house, and then all of a sudden the lights are back on. So just, you know, your run-of-the-mill ghost stuff there. Lights came up in a bunch of places while I researched, so I think it's safe to say that this actually happens. But then again, it's an old house, so I guess it could be bad wiring. I don't know. I doubt it. I feel like electrical problems would have been looked into and fixed. But who knows? So I'm just going to go ahead and say that it's definitely probably ghosts. Lots of people have reported that they feel like they aren't alone um, in certain places in the house or that they're being watched. And then as if these things aren't enough, there's also apparently a shadowy figure that people see in the basement of the house. Um, although the article where I found that wondered if it was truly a ghost or just somebody's imagination. So maybe it's not very well substantiated. I'm not sure. I don't know, I, the ghost, or the ghost. <laughs> the basement's kind of creepy. It is kind of creepy. I loved it, though. Yeah, it was cool. I think in the article it said something like, um, ghost or imagination or something, like, literally just said that, so. No. It so it's probably a ghost. Yeah. I did, however, see two mentions of a black shadowy figure, so I don't know, was it real? Yes. Probably. I think it was real. But I guess it could have been kids being kids, people thinking they would be cool by saying they saw things they didn't. Or was it actually a specter? Which then begs the question of who or what that one is. Like, if Elizabeth is usually a white mist or a fully formed woman, Velma is said to be a woman as well, so what's the shadowy thing in the basement? A different family member? Speaking of the basement, one article said this one... I don't know, this would scare the shit out of me. But an article said that somebody opened the door to the boiler room, and then as soon as they did, all of the lights went out. Okay, now I've seen that boiler room. And if this happened to me, I would shit my pants. Like, basements are no joke to begin with. And this was a gigantic mansion where people definitely died, and violently. So no thank you. Um, I gotta <laughs> no have thanks. lights staying on. Or at the very least, I gotta be able to see how they turned off. Y'all pass. Yeah. Um, hard pass, I think. 
Um, apparently there are times where you can hear kids laughing while you're touring the house, which is fine. Except there are no kids in the house at the time. That's also a pretty big note for me, like disembodied childlike laughter. That's some demonic shit or something. I looked for it, but I couldn't find it. Which doesn't surprise me because of Glenn Sheen's unwillingness to say any that anything paranormal happens there. But apparently there was a promotional photo shoot that happened in the Grand Staircase. Which, if you're paying attention, is where Thelma met her untimely end. Which just, it still just makes me so sad. Me too. Like, I think this part, that part, honestly, is the worst out of all of this is for poor Thelma. Like, she's just there out of the goodness of her heart. And yeah. she gets a candlestick to the head. Very clue. Very clue-like. Very, very clue-like. But anyways, once this photo shoot was finished, um, a woman wearing period clothing appeared in the finished photo, from what I understand. But like I said, I couldn't actually find this picture to look at it, because I tried really hard, but I couldn't find it. I need this picture to exist. Yeah, same. So some visitors uh, say they get lightheaded when they climb the grand staircase, but I mean, stairs are kind of hard. So maybe that's why, I don't know. But you know what else might cause some lightheadedness? Getting hit in the head with a candlestick. <laughs> that's that, accurate. That would that would cause some stuff. Yeah, that that yeah. So I I think we can still safely say it's ghosts. I I don't know. A hundred percent. The last thing, and I feel like this would be absolutely terrifying that gets reported there, is that after dark there are disembodied screams coming from the house. Like I'm just going to say it again. Can you imagine walking by this beautiful house that definitely no one lives in and there's just a scream bursting from it? <laughs> now, like, I'm just I'm just imagining hearing this scream coming and then looking up and seeing the two women standing in the window. Like, no. Um, I wonder if anybody ever calls, like, the cops and they're like, oh my god, somebody's screaming. Yeah, I wonder. And then the cops are like, um, nobody lives there. The cops were like, yeah, yeah, we know. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they're just enjoying their afterlife, or probably not if they're screaming. I don't know. Um, the two things haven't been said that they happened together. The screaming and the seeing them in the window, but yeah. I'm just thinking about it because that's like a recipe for terror. Um, I'd be booking it back home or wherever I decided to walk by the Congo State from. So home, you just book it home. You live like... An hour and a half, two hours away <laughs> yeah, from I there. Just, just high step it all the way home. <laughs> uh, so just a couple of things about the house or land that I found that are a bit creepy or mysterious. First of all, I guess there's a small cemetery on the ground someplace. No, I didn't see it when I was there, but I wasn't looking either. Uh, so anyway, the website where I found that suggested that no one seems to know anything about it, which is weird. Like, who's buried on the land? Is it a place where their pets are buried? Are there some family members that weren't heard there? Who knows? Not me. Not the website where I read about it. And apparently not anyone else either. So, at one point, the land that the house is on was had more acreage. Okay. So, I wonder if maybe it's on a part that um, isn't, con isn't like, owned. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Anymore? I didn't see it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's on, I don't know, 12 acres now? Or we did it used to... I shouldn't talk. I don't know anything. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, anyways, it's... I just said, it's, yeah, like, yeah, you don't know nothing. It's fine. Thanks, cool. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I I wonder if that's where that was. Yeah, maybe. Anyways, um, sorry. Go that's on. That's right. Uh, so, I think that's interesting, though, that there's just this random cemetery that nobody knows anything about. Um. The other thing that I saw is that there are rumors of tunnels that run beneath the estate. 
um, now I don't know anything about those either. Like, where they go, how do you get into them? Like, maybe there are secret passageways in the house or something. Wouldn't surprise me to find out that a huge house like this had secret passageways running around it. No, especially, like, it'd be really cool if there are tunnels going from, like, the gardener's house to the main house or... Yeah, that'd be really cool, actually. The boathouse to, I don't know. But it would be cool, like, if they all connected underground. Especially in Minnesota, so you don't have to, like, go outside in the wintertime. Like, I'm down for that. I would never step outside again. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the things that have been reported as happening at Glensheen. Um, A lot of those seem to come from volunteers and staff at the estate, despite the fact that Glensheen is definitely not haunted, according to its director. So speaking of director lords, it does seem a little curious to me, and this is my speculating. It's not necessarily in any way true. So take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, it seems a little curious to me that he won't allow the NMPI, which stands for the Northern Minnesota Paranormal Investigators, into the house to do any research. Now, the part that's speculation is that he won't allow it. They said in their interview that they haven't been invited there. Not necessarily that they've tried and he said no, but like, I don't know. I'm just speculating that he said no because it makes sense to me. Yeah, if he doesn't want that stuff in the house. Right. But the organization does say that it would be a dream investigation, so I feel like they would have asked. But anyway, it seems odd that if there are no paranormal happenings in there, then why wouldn't you let these people come in and prove it? That seems a little suspicious to me, but again... Yeah, that's true. They could, like, debunk everything. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But maybe it's just a misconnection or something, I don't know. Mr. Director, I'm on to you. Yeah, me too. Um, The the FBI are going to knock down your door now. (laughs) For this non-crime that you're committing. (laughs) But I did want to go into the NMPI a little bit. uh, Just because they sound super cool to me. So it's led by a guy named Brian Leffler. Mr. Leffler lived in two haunted houses during his life. Which seemed to ignite his curiosity about the paranormal. So he says, and I quote, We're trying to perpetuate the study of the paranormal. Which is why I believe the team is made up completely of volunteers. And the NMPI aren't in it for money. They only want to do it. They only want to do their research. So That's NMPI uses only crude equipment because they don't want to get accused of dig- digitally enhancing any of their work. So they use a 35 millimeter camera, an infrared video cassette recorder, and a standard tape recorder. Using a standard tape recorder provides them with raw evidence, like tape or video, and it doesn't store any of that on a computer alone, which they want to avoid. Hmm. Are they taking in volunteers? I. You know, I have no idea, but, like, let's go. I mean, it's in northern Minnesota, which we're kind of, I mean. No, we're central. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely central. (laughs) The North Shore is still, like, hours away. Yeah. So, sadly, as I already said, the NMPI have never been invited to visit Glenshee Manor, and I really hope that one day they can get there and see what kind of creepy shit goes down. So, that's what I have been able to find out about the paranormal goings-on at the historic Condon Estate. Before the pandemic hit, there used to be tours by flashlight of the house, which I desperately want to go on. But you can still take regular tours of the property and see if you can find anything creepy out for yourself. If you do decide to visit, there have been weird happenings that are reported year-round. But apparently the best time to experience anything potentially paranormal in the house is in late June, closer to the 27th, which was the date where they died. So basically, get your tickets for late June, go to Glenchine, and then let us know about any creepy shit you experience. That's all we have for you this week. Make sure you tune in next week for more creepiness. 
Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if we earned it, to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. And if you care, share us, damn it. If you want to reach out, you can do so by email at trulymadlycreepy.pod at gmail.com. Or follow us on Instagram at trulymadlycreepy.pod. You could also go to our Facebook page at trulymadlycreepy, colon, a true crime podcast. Finally, if Twitter is more your thing, we are working on getting one. We just need to come up with a decent name for it because Truly Madly Creepy is too long for the bird. If you have any suggestions, please let us know. Bye! Bye.